Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. She is Stephanie McNeil. Beyonce did that. And you are watching AM to DM. Yes, it's a great way to start off our Monday morning. Right? Yes, Angry Megan, this morning you are all of us. <laughs> oh my God. I appreciate the way that you type that out. The Beyonce Vogue cover, I'm in tears. Anna Wintour, I'm sorry I talked shit. I felt a little bit about that this morning too. It was like such joy and celebration, but also Anna Wintour. I know we talked a little smack on the show, and I apologize. Let's bring up those covers doing. with this tweet from Ashley C. Ford, just so we can see them. Holy hell. That's not like a, you were saying. It's not a flower crown. It's like a flower. What I learned was called a popple tiara, which is the Ooh. big crown thingy the Pope wears. Very nice. I don't know if that's, I don't know. Tweet us and let us know what you think it looks like. That's what it looked like to me. It was absolutely gorgeous. And look at this, just the summer vibes, the kind of linens in the in the summer wind. It was so, so beautiful. All, Ashley also said this about the story. Bitch, I don't even know if I'm ready for the full story. The full story, whoo, because the covers dropped, the images dropped, and the story is just out. Yeah, and Beyonce writes it in the first person. I was doing my makeup and reading it kind of half and half. Um, and she talks a lot about body image and especially after having her children, how she felt, you know, not as much like herself. She said that after she gave birth to her twins, she weighed over, over 200 pounds and she felt, you know, like she, with her first pregnancy, she had to get right back to her old weight and really pushed herself a little too hard. And with this pregnancy, she's kind of been able to take a step back. And she said, you know, my children and my husband and myself, we all love my new body. We love my new curves. And I think that's really, that's really cool. Very good. Yeah, she does. She talks about breastfeeding while going right back on tour and so many other things. She talks about opening doors, ancestry, um, freedom, Coachella on the run too. Uh, and we should say the, the story was uh, by Beyonce kind of told to culture editor at Jezebel Clover Hope, which is amazing to see that she had this opportunity. I just want to have uh, one quote here that I see a lot of people sharing on the timeline. This is from Beyonce. To this day, my arms, shoulders, breasts, and thighs are fuller. I have a little mommy pouch and I'm in no rush to get rid of it. I think it's real. Whenever I'm ready to get a six pack, I will go into B-Zone and work my ass off until I have it. But right now, my little fupa and I feel like we are meant to be. I saw a lot of people loving that she said fupa too. She just used the word. Yeah, I mean, it's hilarious. But also, I think, you know, I grew up in the days where women who are celebrities bounce right back after they have a baby and they say, oh, all I did was go for a walk and, you know, cut down on ice cream or something. So it's refreshing to see, you know, Beyonce saying, yeah, I had twins. I weighed over 200 pounds. I didn't feel like myself, but I've been able to accept that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Beyonce continues to slay, I guess is the moral of the story. And let's leave it with this joyful tweet from Victoria. Beyonce killed the Vogue cover and spread depression is canceled. Depression. Look, at, look at that, look at that little gif, that's funny. Depression is canceled. Ah, oh, word that we could end the show there. Uh, because okay, depression is not Goodbye. canceled. Uh, it's, it's not. Do we I got a lot of, up. yeah, you do. Do I have to keep going? You do, I'm sorry. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. So where were you this weekend when the president <laughs> tweeted this? I'm going to do a dramatic reading. LeBron James was just interviewed by the dumbest man on television, Don Lemon. He made LeBron look smart, which isn't easy to do. I like Mike. Stephanie, I think you read Trump tweets maybe the best out of anyone in AMPDM. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So listen, a lot of folks had feelings about the president coming for the most beloved man in basketball. Ed Krasenstein had this to say, 
LeBron James paid $8 million to build a school for at-risk children. Donald Trump paid $25 million to settle a lawsuit from former students alleging he defrauded them. Whose side are you on? Yeah, in fact, Trump's tweet was so unpopular, it was shaded by almost everyone, including his own wife. Yeah, as Jenny Hogan tweeted, Melania came to LeBron's defense after Trump attacked him on Twitter, making him the first beneficiary of her anti-cyberbullying campaign. Mm, that, I'm glad that she's really kicking that into high <laughs> That is finally starting. That's a good burn. And despite Trump, quote, liking Mike, a spokesperson for Michael Jordan told BuzzFeed News, I support LJ. He's doing an amazing job for his community. Full stop, end quote. I know, I just picture Michael Jordan being rich on a golf course and being like, uh, okay, <laughs> typing on an email while he's like sipping a pina colada. Yeah, yeah, I don't support Donald Trump. I don't know. <laughs> well, joining us now is sports writer and host of the podcast, Take It or Break It, Corbin Smith. Hi there, Hey, Corbin. what's happening? I wish I was where you are. That looks very yeah. nice. Depot Bay, Oregon. There's some whales back here. It's wonderful. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. Well, Corbin, why do you think Trump's attack on LeBron infuriated so many people? Uh, well, because it's extremely racist. Uh, Trump is, uh, you know, is uh, the first poster president, certainly. Uh, for a dude who hates the media so much, he certainly uh, loves to take his cues from uh, members of the media who uh, write sports columns for newspapers. Uh, it's the kind of um, sort of light shading of an athlete's intelligence uh, that um, that has sort of been in the toolkit of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, sports uh, newspaper columnists, radio hosts, who sort of uh, make very brief allusions to an athlete's intelligence or uh, their inherent morality or something along those lines. In a way that uh, sort of uh, sets off a dog whistle that kind of, uh, you know, gets their audience uh, stirred up. Um, yeah, it's uh, incredibly gross. Incredibly gross and incredibly racist. And like you said, he's kind of taking a toolkit from sports columnists. I do want to ask, though, uh, we've seen Trump do this before. How does this fit into kind of his history of disparaging black leaders' intelligence? Uh, uh, well, it does fit in. Uh uh yeah uh it's what he does uh he's uh he's a gross racist and he loves to post like uh like those are the two like those are the two qualities of the dude uh like and and you know and sometimes you like to think like ah he does it to distract people but i really think he's just like not smart enough for that like he is just doing it because he's sort of a knee reflexive racist because he knows that uh his audience uh will lap, you know, the audience, his base will lap it up and sort of, uh, you know, clap their hands like fucking seals or whatever. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's gross. Of course, it, yes. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good way to describe it. So do you think with the NFL season coming up that it'll inspire oh more black football players to stand up against Trump? Uh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, Yes, I suspect. Uh, it's harder over there because I think that the NBA uh, fan base basically supports all that stuff implicitly. Uh, the NFL, it's harder to uh, get behind somebody 100% all the time. But uh, hopefully, I, I, you know, but like, but like 
when that happens, like you're putting your well-being at risk. Like when you do it in the NBA, you're um, you're basically doing what the audience of that particular league wants you to in the NFL. It's not always that simple. And I think that a lot, and also like you could get cut immediately in that league. Uh, you could get injured. Like your career is always so precarious that I think that it's a lot harder for, so, which is just to say, I think there will be dudes who stand up and uh, you know, tell Trump to fuck off. And it should be noted that like, that will be some incredibly brave stuff because you can lose your career at any second in that, in that league. Yeah, it's very true. Well, Corbin, thank you so much for joining us. And please go enjoy that beautiful ocean or lake or whatever it is behind oh, you. Oh, first I'm going to sleep, but then I'll do that. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much thank for joining us. Thank you so us. much. Have a, good, have a good day. From you the too. West Coast. And that listen, I think that speaks to a really, you know, the differences, the nuances between the NBA and the NFL. Yeah, I'm really super glad fascinating. to have him kind of speak on that. Well, listen, last week, QAnon, a supposedly pro-Trump conspiracy, captured the attention of the national media, uh, including, to be honest, this show, all right? There were so many questions out there, explainers. We did a segment on AM to DM just last week. Um, so there's a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, QAnon has been around, I think, since the fall of last year, mm -hmm. but after there were people at the Trump rally holding up signs right behind the president talking about QAnon, saying who is Q, I think the national media kind of had to pedal into being like, okay, we got to explain this now instead of just like kind of ignoring this and, you know, because it's, I mean, it's crazy. It's a crazy conspiracy theory. Well, here's the latest from our own Ryan Broderick. It's looking extremely likely that QAnon is a leftist prank on Trump supporters, which to be honest, I kind of thought yeah. so. You kind of made that call a little while ago, but it looks like yeah. people are actually starting to gather these facts. Ryan Broderick, connoisseur of everything terrible on the internet and deputy global news director, joins us now. Good morning, Ryan. Hey guys, what's going on? Let's start, you know, in case somebody was off the internet last week, enjoying a wonderful life on vacation, with a quick reminder, what is QAnon? Oh man, I'm so jealous of that hypothetical person. Um, <laughs> so basically, I'm gonna, to put it really, really short, uh, the QAnon conspiracy theory is that Donald Trump and the military are secretly fighting a global cabal of pedophiles and that when he made a comment about the coming storm, it was referring to this like sort of great cataclysmic event, kind of a war-like thing that might happen. And it covers like a bunch of crazy stuff in between. Like people believe that John F. Kennedy Jr. Um, faked his own death and is actually Q. I mean, it, it, the whole idea is that someone in the White House is going on 4chan and leaving like tips and codes uh, for f uh, followers at home to like kind of string together for them. So it's it's a mess. It's basically a giant mess. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I read about QAnon, it seemed to me like it had to be a troll because it's not like there was any sort of verification. Like, it seems like I can go on 4chan and do this if I wanted to. So what specifically over the weekend made you start to gather evidence that it is a troll and who exactly is behind the troll? So I've spent the last couple of years sort of uh, following similar stuff to what's happened in the U.S. around the world. So I, I've, I've kind of met a, a lot of activists, uh, particularly in Europe, on the left, uh, anarchists, that kind of community. And I got sent a tip by one of them that this uh, foundation called the Wu Ming Foundation was tweeting that they actually think QAnon might be based off a novel that they published in the 90s. And I was like, that sounds totally insane. But I, you know, 
these days crazy stuff happens all the time. So I was like, I'll, I'll dig into it and just see what it looks like. So I did an interview with the authors of this Italian novel called Q and they pieced together a couple real like specific things about their novel that QAnon has in common. Um, and it seemed to happen around the same time as a bunch of people on 4chan began to suspect that it might be a prank. And I, I want to be really careful because I, I want to say that this probably didn't start off as a prank. I don't think anything happens on 4chan on purpose. It, it's sort of like a giant like writer's room. So just crazy shit gets thrown there. And then if it gets popular enough, it metastasizes from there. But I do think there's a possibility that you know some, some anti- far-right activists were throwing wild stuff on 4chan to see what it would take. And this might have been one of them. And it's now sort of spiraled out of control into a much larger crazy conspiracy theory. A much larger crazy conspiracy that like CNN talked about for the entirety of last week. Uh, Ryan, I know like you and Stephanie kind of live on the internet. You know the ins and outs. You can kind of spot the troll real easy. Uh, I sometimes, I'm a little slower to the punch. So wh why were there people out there really literally falling for this? Uh, well, one of like the really funny things about QAnon is that um, it's not very popular with young people. It's far more popular with like old crazy baby boomers. Um, and if you look at it aesthetically, it looks more like, you know, a horrible email that your aunt would forward you. Then uh, I, I don't want to say that like a Nazi Pepe is more sophisticated, but like it kind of is, right? Um, so if you look at QAnon threads, it's it's... It's very like hand-drawn, crazy, like look at the bulletin board behind me stringing things together. It's very like people who grew up during the Watergate era would find this cool. Whereas I don't think like your average 12-year-old Nazi on 4chan is going to find it very cool. Um, so like Roseanne Barr is like a huge supporter of QAnon. Lots of like, you know, baby boomers on Twitter are very into it. It's very like Cody and weird. Um, and it just seemed to, to catch on for some reason in that community. All right, uh, so Ryan, I do, I do want to ask, um, if this is a troll, though, isn't the damage already still being done? Isn't it starting to have IRL effects? Does it really matter that it maybe started as a joke if people are taking it so seriously? Yeah, I mean, so, like, let's be real. Like, if it is a prank, it's totally funny, and that's amazing. But it's also, like, doesn't make it any less dangerous, Um and I think it almost makes it more dangerous, right? So if a group of people start believing in something really, really, really intensely to the point where they're live streaming themselves, hunting for pedophiles or, you know, pulling up in an armored vehicle near the Hoover Dam and being in a police standoff over this stuff, if they're believing in it that intensely and then all of a sudden they start to suspect that they've been duped, those are the very wrong kinds of people to pull one over on, right? Um, and, you know... Like, we're already beginning to see the fact that this community doesn't really care too much about the specifics of what they believe. I mean, this stuff is totally bonkers to the point where, like, you and I could spend an hour trying to string this stuff together and still wouldn't make any sense to us. So I don't think they need much to go on to begin with. Um, but it has, unfortunately, given some really, really dangerous ideas to some very unstable people, which is the story of the Internet. So, you know, my only hope is that enough people begin to think this is not cool and then it dies. That's the only way to kill anything on the internet is to make it not cool. And I would say the best way to do that is CNN covering it nonstop for several days. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. And I mean, if you're a conspiracy theorist and someone tells you, oh, my con your conspiracy theory is something I made up, then isn't that just going to further into your conspiracy theory? So that's a really bad plan. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us and explaining this all to us. <laughs> <laughs>
I like that. Ryan's just like, we're just gonna kill things, make them not cool, and that will stop it on the internet. Listen, we've got a great show for you this morning. Natasha Leone and Daniel Brooks sit down with Saeed later on. We're gonna show you that conversation. And believe you me, we're gonna be talking about Alex Jones with our main man, Charlie Warzel, later in the show. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome back. We were just talking about QAnon, how it's maybe a leftist troll, talking about how things become popular and then unpopular on the internet. Uh, Christian, you tweeted, the biggest insult is calling something, quote, popular among baby boomers. So true. And I think Ryan is, I mean, Ryan is brilliant at this stuff, but he said that you know, the biggest thing, the biggest way to make something die on the internet is make it uncool. And CNN definitely is the kiss of death for anything cool on the internet. You know, like a explainer, like, what is Rick Rolling? I'm pretty sure killed Rick Rolling. Pretty much killed Rick Rolling. Yeah, I mean, sorry, CNN. <laughs> All right, let's get into these fire tweets <laughs> before Stephanie talks too much trash. <laughs> All right, you ready? <laughs> Sophie Benoit, I don't need every everyone to like me. I just need for no one to be even the slightest bit upset at me ever. Yeah, and as a, yeah, are, are you an INFP? Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah, me too, I've, yeah. Uh, where we have like extreme dislike of conflict, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you 100%. I felt that tweet kind of in my bones. Uh, yeah. Let's do one. All right, Victoria Kirst, you tweeted, okay, what if once a year, everyone wore a giant name tag for like a week, and this would be the way we secretly learn the names of the people whose names we don't know, but should, and now it's awkward to ask. This is like a prayer. I would love, this is like polite people purge. This would make my life if we could all just for one week wear that name tag, and then the person that I've been calling chief or pal for the last two years, I'd actually know their name. See, Isaac, I feel like you would not have this problem at all because you're so nice. Like we walked in this morning and you knew the name of the guy at the front desk and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm such an asshole. Like I never even like learned this guy's name. Like you're so nice. No, Stephanie, that's literally because I have his name written on my, I literally like walk in and I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Chris. <laughs> I'm just joking, Chris, I love you. Uh, I totally know your name, it's not I wrong. know your name now too, thanks Chris. <laughs> thanks Isaac. <laughs> Molly Pretty, am 33 years old, sees my fifth grade teacher, me, oh man, hi Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Smith, hi, you know you can call me Ann now, we're both adults, me, absolutely not, have a nice summer though, great to see you Mrs. Smith. <laughs> Honestly, I saw this tweet and I didn't tell you at the time, but something really dark I thought of is I wonder if some of my elementary school teachers are dead. Stephanie! <laughs> I don't that know they old! Turn. <laughs> That's what I've been thinking of, so now this tweet isn't fire, it's just sad to me. Mrs. Smith is fine, she's out, she's shopping. I feel like I really relate to this tweet, because like if I saw Mrs. Walker coming down the street, there's no way I'm calling her like, I don't know Mrs. Walker's first name, but uh, you know, I just wouldn't do it. Yeah, my mom was a middle school teacher for like 15 years in our hometown and she would see her students all the time and they go always, it's like kind of funny when you're walking with your mom as you're a kid and you see someone and they're just like, oh, just, hello, Mrs. Just Neil. Tipping it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia, you tweeted, sorry, I don't want a sugar daddy, but maybe like a sugar buddy? I just hit him up like, hey, how you doing today? And he replies, doing great, thanks for asking. Here's seven grand. 
Mm. I know. It's like, I love the sugar daddy business when it comes to, it's called like the extracurricular activities. I just want a man to give me money. That's, that's it. That's what you want. <laughs> that's, that's, all, that's all I need. That's the one thing. All right. You ready to do this tweet of the day? Yes. I love this so much. It's from Dallas Ann. And I love that she put brackets. Wedding. <laughs> Anyone know why these two should not be joined in marriage? Me, from the back. They're doing a cash bar. Priest drops Bible. Oh, Have yeah. Have you ever been to a wedding with a cash bar? Yes, yeah. unfortunately. It's not. That's great. all I'm going to say because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but... You know, ooh. 70's not gonna name names, but listen, Twitter, we thought we'd have some fun with this. We wanna hear from you. What's the worst thing you've ever seen at a wedding? Let's just really broaden that aperture. Worst thing you've seen at a wedding, let us know using the hashtag AM2. I've gone to a lot of bad weddings. I've gone to, what, like eight weddings in the past like six months or so? Oh man, <laughs> let's, uh, hashtag pray for Stephanie. Listen, leave your Bible at home and hit the open bar because up next, we're going live from the district and it's gonna be with Paul McLeod. Where's the open bar? Where's the open bar? Backstage. We're gonna go. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning. How's it going there in D.C., yes. Paul? How's your Monday going? Oh, you know, just another wonderful Monday morning. Congress is out, so we're kind of free of the insanity for about seven more days. Okay, Perfect. well, that's really nice. Luckily, our president continues to tweet. Here's one from just this morning. California wildfires are being magnified and made so much worse by the bad environmental laws, which aren't allowing massive amount of readily available water to be properly utilized. It is being diverted into the Pacific Ocean. Must also tree clear to stop fire spreading. Paul, what? What? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. I got nothing on this one. I have no. I have no idea. I don't know. I, I just want to be clear. No. Water goes into the ocean. That's what water does. I mean, no firefighter I, okay. company, nobody in California has said that there's a problem caused by environmental laws and they're not having enough water to fight these forest fires. Right, Paul? Yeah, it's, I, it, I, again, I have no idea what he's talking about. It, it, it makes zero sense. I mean, the show is just showing its East Coast bias right now because as a Californian, I'm really insulted you guys don't know of the big water spout that goes from the fires. <laughs> to the ocean. It's like a landmark where I'm from. I, I, I weirdly, I missed that one. Well, all right. Yeah, you guys should really shut that thing off. <laughs> you know what? We, that's our vibe. Well, Trump had quite a Twitter weekend, so let's go over some of his other big hits. Okay, I'm going to read this one. Fake news reporting, a complete fabrication. That I am concerned about the meeting my wonderful son Donald had in Trump Tower. This was a meeting to get information on an opponent. Totally legal and done all the time in politics. And it went nowhere. I did not know about it. <laughs> Paul, so is Trump just being open about the meeting? Why now? <laughs> yeah, Trump just having a, an extremely normal one online over the weekend. Uh, part of what I think might be setting this off is there was a report last week in the Washington Post that uh, one of my favorite stories I've read recently that Donald Trump is concerned that while his, his son, his wonderful son, Don Jr., he doesn't think that he did anything intentionally illegal, uh, he's concerned that he may have 
accidentally done some things that are going to get him tripped up in the Mueller probe. So he's, it seems like he's starting to freak out about that a bit and is maybe trying to get out ahead of it and uh, really sort of pave the groundwork that uh, his son is innocent no matter what. And uh, <laughs> as to whether or not he knew about it, that is, I mean, it's all, that's what's so weird about this is that this was ostensibly a, son defend, a tweet defending his son, but then at the end throws out, I had no idea, and he's still kind of looking out for himself at the end of the tweet there. Looking out for himself at the end of the tweet there, and I do, I gotta apologize for all the giggles, but I just love, I would like watch a video <laughs> of Stephanie just reading Trump tweets. I did wanna ask though, Paul, um, is it legal or is that for Mueller to decide? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, I'm just a barely literate reporter, but I think it really would largely depend on what happened inside that meeting. I think we'd have a tough time putting together a criminal case based on them just taking this meeting, even though the optics of it obviously look terrible, uh, meeting with the Russians to try to get dirt on your political opponent. But whether or not you could put together some sort of criminal charge around that, I think would be very difficult. But, you know, depending on what came out of that meeting, you know, there's always the C word floating around, collusion, did they actually work together? Uh, that, of course, very much would be illegal. So I just don't think we have enough to go on yet. We know that this looks bad, but we don't have all of the info, and certainly not enough to say that anything illegal happened. We also want to talk about Trump's continued tweets against the media this weekend. Is he stepping up attacks on journalists? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's been very successful at uh, demonizing the media, obviously, and having his supporters basically tune out uh, the us's, the CNNs, the Washington Post, and New York Times of the world, and having and just sort of corroding that faith for people who want to believe in him. But now he really is taking it to the next level of saying that the media are the enemy of the people. I mean, this is us versus them rhetoric that is taken to a degree that is, I mean, just completely outside of the norms of modern history. You commonly have politicians attacking the press, but they don't go so far as to state over and over that they are the literal enemies of the people, which of course is nonsense. The only media that's the enemy of the people is me and Emma Loop, who are Canadian double agents sent down here to unravel your democracy. But that's on us. It is unfair that you guys get painted with the same brush. I really appreciate that you're drawing that line in the stand, that you're differentiating between us and you. Appreciate that, Paul. Well, listen, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. At this year's Netroots Nation, Democrats embrace the language of the new left. Uh, Paul, how is this kind of new language going to impact the 2020 primary? Yeah, I find this really interesting because you forget that it was just a couple of years ago that we had a, uh, a presidential election, or before that even a primary, a Democratic primary, where Bernie Sanders was seen as the, the really far out there candidate, the, the huge underdog that could not ever have a chance with all of the things he was talking about, about bringing in you know, socialized health care and all of this. And the world has changed so much between now and then because a lot of the the issues, the the rhetoric, the, the speaking style even of Bernie Sanders, that is what is being adopted by the candidates who are heading into 2020. It's Frankly, it's not so much the sort of middle ground Clinton camp, even though obviously she won the primary. Uh, we're seeing a real shift in the Democratic Party, and it was very apparent, uh, as you can see, in uh, this uh, uh, roots this weekend, where the presidential candidates who were there, I mean, they were, they were taking a very uh, progressive leftist tact uh, 
I think more so than they would have been emboldened to do even a couple of years ago. So who are these 2020 standouts that we should keep an eye on ahead of the primary to next year? So there, there. I mean, obviously, there are going to be a million people who are competing for this uh, 2020 primary. But the big names that were there this weekend, in terms of actual uh, people who have a chance and we expect to be front runners, uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, uh, Senators Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, Kamala Harris from California. I mean, Kamala Harris is an interesting example. She's one who was a district attorney. She was a state attorney general. She was someone who built up a reputation and sort of a you know tough on crime kind of person. And now she has completely uh, accepted and embraced this uh, this very progressive style and this, this progressive identity and these things are never accidental there's always po underlying polling showing that like this is what the people want and it seems pretty clear that in the democratic pr primaries that's what people are looking for right now for sure well thank you so much paul that makes me feel like your canadian spy stuff is working out paul and i don't know how i feel about it yeah, uh, this is all just phase one of the master plan. You'll 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 find out the the whole Canadian <laughs> multi-part plan eventually. Don't you worry. <laughs> but you guys are so nice, we'll never see it coming. <laughs> Up next, Saeed sits down with Danielle Brooks and Natasha Lyonne. Stay tuned. Super excited for this. It's a really great conversation. It's exciting. Hello, my queens. I am here with two of the stars of Orange is the New Black, Danielle Brooks and Natasha Leone. Hello. Thank What's you for having y'all. Serving looks. Thanks, you legs, too. Yes, yes. <laughs> Everything. Yes. I love it. Um, okay, so, you know, we don't want the Twitter girls to come for us because mm -hmm. Orange is the New Black, the new season, has only been out for about a week now. And, you know, we're, we've been told that we have to declare this a spoiler-free zone. Oh, really? <gasps> don't uh -huh. at us. Don't come for us. So without giving too much away. I was wondering if you could just uh, kind of talk about maybe the most uh, exciting turn for each of your characters this season. Oh, gosh. The most exciting turn. Oh, well, as we know, Tasty has been dealing with the death of Pusey, which in reality was only three days yeah. ago I'm in this world. <laughs> yeah, we all grieve it. Yeah. Um, and so she's still dealing with that as well as like being defeated when it came to like really trying to get prison reform mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So this season with her, you know, <laughs> Gingy did a great job in her you know, team of writers because she really um, brought home a bit of reality mm. to the audience of how the world really works for people that are incarcerated and mm. are poor and are black and mm. do not have the support system to really, you know, thrive. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to see. I don't want to spoil it, right. but yeah. It gets real. It gets real. <laughs> Been real, but gets yes, yeah. yeah. And Danielle is just devastating this season. I mean, every season, but it's like uh, I personally take a lot of joy in my life from getting a basket in her golden glow. Aww, Find it like her. deeply inspiring as a human yeah, being and an artist and everything, because it's. Um, I mean, it's a, such a. Um, it's so incredible like you're saying to have that kind of writing but to really see it mm -hmm. come through and like you're saying I mean all these really heavy themes that are mm -hmm. so um, devastatingly poignant especially right now in this moment that we're living in mm -hmm. and how incredible it is to be on a show that communicates that right right and what about what about for your character um, you know, Nikki's mostly hanging around, you know, doing this, doing that. Uh, 
So over here, over there. Um, I, I think we really see Nikki kind of uh, sort of grow up almost against her will a bit mm. this season. Uh, I think in previous seasons it's mostly, uh, you know, she's so self-destructive um, by nature and like most addicts are. Um, but I think the stakes are so high this year that she has no choice but to kind of show up for uh, the people that she loves and the relationships that are, you know, oddly the most important ones to her are the ones that she's developed in prison. Wow. Wow. And, and to that point about Nikki's uh, addiction, I, I was thinking about as, you know, the show has developed and we've all kind of grown up with um, Orange is the New Black, outside the show, there's been, you know, a national conversation about the opioid epidemic yeah. and, and overdoses. And unfortunately, it just keeps manifesting. And so I was wondering, you know, as you're out talking about it and people come up, you know, because Nikki's journey is real and the ups and downs are something that a lot of people can relate to. Um, is that a conversation people have like with fans like coming in? I mean, in? you know, maybe indirectly. I mean, certainly I have my own experience with it, mm -hmm. but I, I feel like in so many ways, the most uh, valuable thing with, uh, so many things uh, that need to be spoken about is like uh, removing this sort of cloak of shame right. from the conversation. I feel like, you know, in so many ways, that's why Oprah became such a giant was sort of uh, um, awakening us all to that idea that we shouldn't be ashamed of being human and, you know, being frail and being complex and, you know, often broken and that we each have a, a story and a place that we come from that's, you know, it's never perfect, and we all just do the best we can in the day we're in, and um, try to show up for that, you know. And so I think so much of the the opioid crisis is, is really, in so many ways, about um, just exposing it and allowing it to be okay to have those conversations in a in a safe, sort of non-punishing, uh, non-judgmental way. Absolutely, and it's so important. Um, Danielle, you know, I, speaking of the way Pusey died was killed. She didn't die. She mm -hmm. was murdered. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard. I mean, I, li it, I still think about it, and I think it's interesting, as you point out, several seasons have happened, but for your character, for, for Pusey's friends, it's just been a few days. Mm -hmm. And that's, it feels like, like, isn't that what it's like to be black in America? Like, <laughs> y'all have moved on, but for us, it's yeah. just been a few days. Um, I was wondering, what, what was it like on set, uh, you know, these two past seasons, um, delving into current events when it's like you walk off set and you pick up your phone and someone's called the cops on somebody for walking into Starbucks. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Yeah, I think it just kept you into the story and, and kept reminding you of how you just have to keep bringing your uh, human self to mm -hmm. the storytelling. You can't phone it in at all, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And there were, unfortunately, so many uh, parallels to what was going on in America it, it happening simultan right. simultaneously at the same time. That's the same thing. <laughs> 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 happening at the same time. Um, you know, but uh, the thing I love about the show is that, like, we're not afraid to get in there. We're not afraid to talk about these issues. There's so many issues that we are are addressing on this show, but we found a way, Gingy's found a way to hit them with a little bit of uh, comedy to mm -hmm. kind of massage in the truth and let people really see themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I would never forget like when, you know, Pusey did pass away or was killed in our show, how many people on social media were like, Oh my God, R.I.P. Pusey, this is so sad. I mean, I got 200,000 likes, I don't know, trillions of likes 
on this picture of Poussey posting her on social media. And I said to them, to my fans, to the audience that were listening to my platform, I said, don't forget there are real people dealing with this. So as many times as you tweet and Instagram and like, you know, and say R.I.P. Poussey, don't forget to say that same thing for Philando Castile or right. Nia Renisha Wilson. McBride. or Yeah, yeah like, like let's Wilson. not oh forget yeah. um, the, those people that are, are, are truly dealing with it now, in mm -hmm. the moment, you know. Um, so uh, that's why I love the show. It just mm -hmm. kind of reminds the audience of that. And we, as artists, get to also be like, hey, mm -hmm. like, like, let's focus and pan back on what's true and, mm -hmm. and, and important. I like that. I like that. Something that's really cool to me, I think, about Orange is the New Black is that, you know, when it uh, debuted on Netflix, you know, it was kind of like one of the first, and in terms of like the original programming and, and, and this cast, and, and so much has happened since then, right? The Emmys and Uzo, Laverne, you know, it's like, look at, and, and now it's like five billion other Netflix shows <laughs> have kind of followed in your wake, you know, and I, I wondered, you know, as actors, Actors, as, as women, you know, with impressive careers already and even more so now, what has the last few years been like being a part of this? I mean, I think we're really proud. You know, I mean, it's so incredible to be on like the first wave of mm -hmm. something and mm -hmm. to have gone on that ride and to like get to go on it together, mm -hmm. you know, because that's like our team now. Yeah. So it's like a win for Uzo or Laverne or like Samira's not only a handmade sale, yes. but she's also like in a new play at Williamstown. We're going to go up and see her. Like, mm -hmm. Every time, like, one of us kind of, you know, that means that we have, like, a whole tribe now that gets to mm -hmm. sort of keep moving together. And I, so I think even Netflix is like this incredible place that we sort of met as a really small outfit and so this sort of unknown mm -hmm. uh, quantity. And that just became, like, watching it become so huge and that it is sort of on, on the uh, foundation of, like, all these incredible meaningful sort of topics you These know at least for stories. our show yeah. is i think feels sort of uh, uh like a life-affirming pursuit in the arts right on i love it yeah i second everything that natasha said for sure i think it's cool in a sense to feel like the ogs you know <laughs> of netflix or at least that's how i feel I like sort it. of like yeah we kind of you know but i i really am just proud to be a part of Netflix. I think they've really helped me to understand what type of work that I want to take. Um, you know, at first it was just kind of just needing a job, and but at this point I can um, decide, you know, specifically I want to work with people that are pushing us forward in Hollywood and making sure that we're not getting stagnant mm -hmm. in storytelling. And they've done that so beautifully, and they've really kind of uh, set the tone for all of these other networks, you know, to kind of take their format and see that, you know, people actually want to hear stories that they haven't heard before. You know, they want to be introduced to people that are similar to themselves or very drastically different from who they are. So I'm, I'm glad to be a part of something that's moving us forward. Me too, and I'm, I'm grateful to witness it. Um, so we wanted to be messy. Okay. <laughs> Now that we've been thoughtful, now we can be messy. Yeah. Uh, we'll play a round of Would You Rather. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> we played this game in Germany and we're like, have we or haven't we? Done? I know. And we're just like. Just having a deja vu moment. Hilarious. Yeah. It's okay. okay. And it's, it's um, pairing your castmates against their characters. Okay. So okay. Would you rather I think do it with the person or with yeah, the I definitely don't get it, but I'm fully getting okay, it. Okay, let's go. Let's yeah. do this. Uh, let's start with you. Okay. You both, you both get to answer the question. So, Wonderful. Uh, I sip tea. Yeah, sip some tea yeah. if you need to, darling. <laughs> um, who's a worse enemy to have? Mm -hmm. Red mm -hmm. or Kate Mulgrew? Okay, I get it. Oof. We're there. 
Oof. What are we doing? And you're next. I'm gonna I'm gonna say red because I think that like red would be prone to sort of actual violence. Like I don't think Kate would actually kill anybody. You know, at least as far as I know. <laughs> you owe me in these coffee cups. Uh, but uh, Kate Mulgrew, definitely not somebody you want on your bad side. I'll tell you that much. Okay. Uh, but I'm more scared of red as far as like my kneecaps getting broken. Okay, fair, reasonable. What do you think? Oh, I have to answer that? Mm -hmm. I don't get the next question. Do you want the next yeah, one? Yeah, okay, you're like, like, that's that's that. it. like, okay, yeah, yeah, um, oh, okay. <laughs> a little color purple moment. Would you rather star in a musical written by Suzanne <laughs> or see a Broadway show with Uzo? Oh, <laughs> that's, that's hard. Dang. That's actually really hard. Because I feel like Suzanne would write some bars. I know. I feel like Suzanne <laughs> yeah. would have me making actor choices I've never thought of. Yeah. You know, going <laughs> imagination. Shakespeare, really, it would you know, yeah. like I think she would take me there. <laughs> she might help me win a Tony, you know. Um, It'd be like the Wooster group a little yeah. bit. Though. It'd be like it out would. there. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. would. That would be fun. I think I would do that first because I've already gone to Broadway shows uh -huh. with Uzo and that's a blast. Mm -hmm. Done it. Check. On to Suzanne like writing me a mu musical. I, I love it. Yeah, it would, there'd be puppets. It'd be yeah, a whole, you know, it'd costumes, be a whole thing. Yes. I mean, going into the audience, mm -hmm. probably playing instruments. Be on wires. Oh, yeah, my God. we see it. Uh, would you rather have, oh, who would you rather have your back in a fight? Pensatucky mm. or Taryn Manning? Oof. <laughs> um, well, I just, Pensatucky, Lawless, you know what I mean? Like, Terry Manning definitely, I feel like, would be good in a fight, mind mm -hmm. you, but would have, like, a sense of stopping, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> the fight is over, stop. So depending on what kind of a fight, like, how risky it right. was, I'm like, let's get Punstucky in here, because she's, you know, <laughs> she's not quite ride or die, she's more like die or die, but, you know? <laughs> it's like, how are we dying? Yeah. We gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Taryn's a little more ride or die. Okay. And I'm going oh. for die or die. Okay, but, I yeah. get that. I get that. Um, Danielle, would you rather bunk with Piper or never speak to Taylor Schilling again? <gasps> I didn't write this one. I'm sorry, that's a tough one. Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Y'all put some heat in this. Um, I'd rather, like, be able to talk to Taylor. <laughs> I don't want to cut off my girl. It's just that simple. I don't need to bunk with Piper. I'm good. <laughs> like, I don't need to see no drama with her, Alex. I'm mm -hmm. fine. Like, making little flowers for the wedding. I'm good. Like, I'd rather spend some time with Taylor. <laughs> I like that. I agree. I agree. All right, one more. Uh, would you rather get a makeover from Flocka or go to karaoke with Jackie Cruz? Ah, both sound fun. That's true. Uh, they're both great. Um, well, I already got that makeover from Flocka in, uh, right, in season oh, five. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? That's how I got so bangs. Like That's how I got straight hair. Get, the look was... Yeah. Okay. That was all Flocka. <laughs> the look was So, fierce. since that's a check, okay. I'm going to go uh, to karaoke yeah, later it. with Danielle and Jackie. That was That's what's going to happen later. It just all... It just like I saw it. Yeah. All right. You've I like this game though. We I like it. Jackie's got a major game. voice. Really? She yeah. A new song out. Okay. I mean, this one we know is unbelievable. Know. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Um, a new song out. All you gotta right. check it out. I'll check it it's out. It's kind of fierce. It's fun. We'll look it's for a fun it. song. All right. Well, Natasha. Uh, zero songs, zero <laughs> voice. <laughs> That's not true. Fact it's check. Zero. Fact check. <laughs> <But> <laughs> can you say something? No. No. Yeah. Absolutely I'm sure not. We can pull out a I voice. love you both too much to submit you to that. Um, <laughs> Danielle Brooks, Natasha Leon, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for your work and your 
glow. It matters. We appreciate it. Friends, Orange is the New Black, you already know. It's streaming on Netflix. Go forth and binge, children. You deserve more AM to DM is coming up next. As you all know by now, I am obsessed with true crime and thrillers and true crime books. So Sierra Velarde, BuzzFeed Books newsletter at editor is here to give me some recommendations for what I should read next in this genre. Sierra, thank you so much for joining me to talk about one of my favorite topics ever, true crime and thriller books. Of course, it's one of my favorite topics too. It's the best, it's the best. <laughs> okay, so you are gonna give me some book recommendations and I'm happy because you have two I haven't read and two I have. So the first one is called You by Caroline Kepnes and it's going to be adapted into a TV show. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so when I first read it, it made me super terrified of anything, um, posting anything on social media. So it's about this guy Love who it. works, yes, it's about this guy who works in a bookstore, and this woman comes in, and he becomes instantly attracted to her. And so he, like anyone you're attracted to, you Google their name, because she paid with a credit card, and then he finds all of her social media accounts, and it kind of evolves from there, and his obsession kind of turns into stalker. And, and it's going to be a TV show? Yes, yeah, so it's premiering on um, September 9th, I think, on Lifetime, and it's starring Penn Badgley. It's kind of the like, Ooh. so yeah, so it's his, his return to TV after yeah, Gossip Humphreys. Girl. I know, yeah. Creepy. Not a stretch, like a guy on the internet. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, oh, that sounds great. I need to, I need to read that. So another one that's yeah. being adapted into a movie starring Carrie Washington is The Perfect Mother by Amy Malloy. And I read this, I guess a few months ago. Mm -hmm. um, Same. Yeah, one of the perks we get here at BuzzFeed is sometimes new releases kind of trickle around the office and I am a huge book snatcher from the yeah. <laughs> bookshelves when I see them and I grabbed this one. Um, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so um, it's kind of, it's, about four women who all have babies um, in May. So they call themselves the May Mothers. And they go out in Fourth of July. It's kind of like their first outing um, since giving birth. And one of the moms, Winnie, her baby gets taken in the middle of the night. Um, she was she was being, or the baby was being taken care of by um, a babysitter. So um, through that, a lot of secrets come out about Winnie. And then the other three moms who didn't really know Winnie uh, previously become obsessed trying to figure out um, what happened to this baby. And I really enjoyed it because it's kind of, even though it's a, a typical thriller, it kind of delves deeper into like the scrutiny that mothers face all the time. And um, all the characters are really, um, really multi-level and you really like find out more about it, about them and the ending I did not see coming at all. The ending was, it was amazing. Crazy. It's hard to trick me at this point. Yeah, I same. feel like I can guess twists in books pretty easily, but this one definitely got me. Um, it reminded me a lot of Reconstructing Amelia. I don't know if you've read, read that, that one, book, no. but it's also about being a mother in Brooklyn, which I find interesting, you know, living oh, in the yeah, city. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, it's definitely, I can't wait to see the movie. I can't oh, wait yeah. to see who else they She's cast. She's gonna be great in it, yeah. I know. Ooh, okay. <laughs> we have a tweet here from Sarah Kalana who tweeted, book friends, has anyone read The Woman in the Window by AJ Finn? Currently reading it and it is eyes emoji, eyes emoji, eyes emoji, <laughs> eyes emoji. <laughs> so I read this one as well and when I picked it up, it like, you know, it had this big thing on the front of it that said, 
this is the movie that, or the book that everyone wants to turn into a movie. And I didn't like it. Um, I was, I was uh, surprised by the endings. But what did you think of it? Yeah, this one kind of kept me up till 2 a.m. reading every night. Um, it's kind of Girl on the Train-esque, where um, the main character, she is a recluse, like has a bit of a drinking problem, um, such a little bit of the unreliable, unreliable narrator thing going on. Um, and so one night she sees um, something she shouldn't outside of her window, and it kind of propels it forward. Um, I really liked it. It has like the classic um, elements of a, a psychological thriller. So it's like, I, I love her it. <laughs> I, I, did, I did like it a lot. Um, I just thought, it, I, with all the hype, I was like, I think, like it was very, it was very typical. Like Girl on the Train. Oh, for blah, sure, blah, yeah. Blah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely liked it. Yeah, and it's like almost 500 pages, but it went by super fast. That's true, yeah. that's true. It read very quickly. <laughs> okay, so we have one more. I haven't read this, but uh, it looks really good. It's by Riley Sager who has been compared with Gillian Flynn, Gillian Flynn, I don't know how you say that, praised <laughs> by Stephen King. It's called The Last Time I Lied. And I, I mean, anything with lying and like a girl looking melancholy on the cover, I like <laughs> pick up immediately, but tell me yeah, a little bit about it. It's like classic true crime, psychological thriller, you know, like that cover. Um, but yeah, so I just got this one recently and um, it's about these, these four girls that um, are going to camp and um, it's a really good to read in the summer because it's like, remind, takes you back to summertime and everything. Um, and so three of the girls um, sneak out in the middle of the night and are never seen again. And so the other girl that's left, Emma, I know. <laughs> Um, kind of Pretty Little Liars-esque, right, you know? Um, and so Emma, um, we kind of flash forward 15 years later, and she comes back to the camp as um, a painting instructor. And so it's her perfect opportunity to kind of figure out what happened, and then also she's discovering a lot of more, like, more secrets that she didn't know before. And so it's very nefarious, keeps, keeps you turning. I'm yeah. sure she's like a little damaged, but like holding it all in. Yes, yes, and yeah, and her paintings are obviously like, she's trying to work out her, her troubles from the past and everything. So. Oh, I love, <laughs> I love a good mystery with a female protagonist. Oh yes, yeah, Anytime definitely. there's a guy in it, I'm like, oh, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Sierra, thank you so much for thank joining you. me talking about my favorite subject in your AM to DM debut. Don't go away. Up next, Isaac is talking to Charlie Warzel about the ongoing battle between tech companies and Alex Jones with some breaking news. This morning, our own Charlie Warzel tweeted, Woke up to news that Facebook has pulled Alex Jones' InfoWars pages, but only after Apple and Stitcher took comprehensive action. I wrote last week that Facebook should have seen this outcome forming weeks ago, but instead dragged its feet and now looks reactive. Charlie joins us now. Charlie, good morning. Good morning. So let's start with this. Why is this all happening now? Oh man, uh, that's a great question. Uh, Basically, where we're at on this sort of Alex Jones versus the big tech platforms um, saga is that it's been about three or so weeks since the first uh, time that CNN reporter Oliver Darcy sort of launched this this whole thing by asking, you know, Facebook, why, if you're dedicated to fighting fake news, are you letting Alex Jones on the platform? Since then, it there has been just, you know, almost daily... Uh, machinations, uh, lots of reports, um, trying to, you know, uh, 
clarify their own policies. And, uh, and, and frankly, there, there's been a lot of confusion, I think, internally about what they wanted to do. There was, you know, a, a strong warning that, uh, that Alex Jones, you know, needed to sort of step back, that he was on thin ice. Then there was uh, suspending some pages. You know, YouTube got involved and, and took down a couple of videos. Facebook followed suit. Then you have uh, companies like Spotify getting pressure to take them down. Spotify takes down a couple of episodes, but not all the episodes. Stitcher, the podcast app, takes down all the episodes. Uh, then uh, last night, Apple made this sort of sweeping decision and decided to um, take down all but one of uh, Alex Jones's podcasts uh, or Infowars's podcasts off of iTunes and the podcast app. And that sort of made a... Um, it made it difficult for a company like Facebook, I think, and they sort of reactively scrambled uh, and uh, took down uh, a bunch of pages. So we're basically at this, you know, everyone's playing off of each other. Um, and I think they're sort of writing the rules on the fly. And it's, it's, it, it's pretty wild. <laughs> and, being re- and, and being very reactionary. Um, so what is it, why does it matter to Alex Jones that these pages are being pulled, that Apple's dropping almost all of his uh, podcasts? Why does, why does it matter? Uh, it matters because of because of the reach. Um, you know, these platforms are an extremely uh, you know vital um, branch for any uh, news organization, any content organization, rather. And and you know the reach that that Jones can get off of you know his personal Facebook page had as of last week one point seven million likes. Um, you know, on YouTube, he has you know I think over uh, two and a half million uh, subscribers. Um, you know, the Apple Podcasts app has, um, you know, millions of people listening. It's, it's easily the biggest podcast platform, um, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, these are places where they can go out and get their, and their message out and, and spread this. And so, you know, I think that the people like Jones and the pro-Trump media don't just succeed in sort of gaining new viewers every day, but it's their ability to cross over to a new audience or to sort of, you know, jump into the mainstream media conversation and, you know, needle journalists or media organizations and and kind of stir things up. And so what, what this effectively does is make it a lot harder for someone like Alex Jones to, you know, reach out and be a part of that conversation. Uh, And, and so I think, I think it's, it's really meaningful in in that respect and, and and consequential for an outlet like InfoWars. Consequential. So Charlie, uh, listen, you write a newsletter. It's called InfoWarsL. I love it. Longtime subscriber, first time caller. Uh, you've been following Alex Jones for a while. Where did Alex Jones come from? Oh, man. Uh, Alex Jones has been a sort of conspiracy theorist, fringe media figure since the early 90s. Uh, he came out of Austin, Texas, and he started in uh, public access television. And it was sort of a, um, you know, black helicopter, um, Waco-style conspiracy theory uh, thing to a very limited audience. And he, in Austin, he was sort of thought of as like a sideshow act, like a carnival barker of sorts. And uh, he has been incredibly... Um, influential in the conspiracy world as sort of one of the most prominent people putting forward, you know, 9-11 inside job conspiracy theories. And he's, he's been doing this for a long time. And, and Jones actually, you know, apropos of this, was a really early adopter of the internet. Uh, he created the InfoWars website in the 90s and, and really used that to sort of get around the idea that he wasn't allowed on a lot of, you know, terrestrial like FM radio stations um, and, and basically created his streaming show on the internet and built this this fan base. And so he's really come into sort of the fore 
uh, in the last probably three or so years, sort of along the rise of Donald Trump. Uh, Trump went on Infowars back in uh, you know the early parts of uh, the 2016 campaign season, and and you know Jones has really championed that and been uh, a, a real voice of the pro-Trump movement since then. So. Um, you know, as our politics has gotten a little bit more uh, filled with conspiracy theories and, and gravitated towards that, Jones has been this central figure. And uh, you know, he is he sort of presents this issue for all of these tech companies that, you know, he's he's a, a prominent and popular person, but he also sort of acts in, in bad faith in this way that uh, I think the tech companies have really struggled uh, up until, you know, today to uh, try to police or understand or moderate in any way. Yeah, to moderate in any way. So th there are people out there, though, that are arguing that removing him from these platforms is going to only turn Alex Jones into a martyr. Uh, what, what would you say to people that are making that argument? Well, I mean, I think that that is obviously a, a valid argument. I think that uh, not only will happen, but it already has happened. You know, uh, last week, I believe, or possibly the week before, it's hard to keep it all straight. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz and, and some other people, you know, tweeted in uh, Tucker Carlson uh, in support of, you know, not censoring uh, Alex Jones from these platforms. They called it a free speech issue. And so, you know, today and in the ensuing days, he will become sort of um, a, a martyr for that side of the group. But I, but I also think that, you know, when you're looking at these platforms and the, you know, the audience that Jones can reach, um, if you're really trying to eradicate something like fake news, Jones, Jones has been, uh, you know, very uh, influential in sort of sowing discord and sort of creating these narratives designed to, you know, make people nervous or sort of, you know, divide a little bit. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it doesn't really matter necessarily, uh, you know, what, Facebook or another com company does with Alex Jones, that that narrative of, you know, free speech censoring is already alive and well. It's been kicking around the internet uh, for, you know, a very long time and it's been heating up. So, you know, I think it really, it, these platforms have a lot of really difficult decisions to make when it comes to, you know, what they want to qualify as news. And I know that they don't want to make those decisions if they can help it. But, you know, I, I feel that, uh, the idea of trying not to do something because of the way that, you know, a very loud and vocal group is going to protest, uh, it doesn't really make sense if it's actually a violation of the policies you set out. That you actually set up. Uh, listen, Alex Jones, like we were talking about, has been in the news, it seems, a lot these last couple of weeks. Last week, you tweeted, the fact that Alex Jones is seeking over $100,000 in court costs from the parents of a child who died at Sandy Hook is awful. And it's made all the worse when you realize how much money Jones and Infowars rake in from its audience. Charlie, why on earth is Alex Jones seeking money from these parents? Well, this, uh, this is uh, something that the New York Times reported last week. There is a, a, a trial going on um, about uh, a family from Sandy Hook. Uh, he's actually in, in a couple lawsuits, but uh, have, have sort of taken legal action against him. Uh, and. The New York Times reported last week that he's seeking um, some legal costs from the the family, and and so that is the the hundred dollar a hundred thousand uh, dollars mark. Um, you know, I I can't speak because I haven't spoken with Jones about this, but I can't speak to you know why he's doing that. But but I I think the sort of the second part of that tweet um, 
in my reporting of Alex Jones, I wrote a profile of him in 2017, spent a lot of time in Austin, Texas, speaking with people who knew him, speaking with a lot of former employees. And the thing that was so striking to me is um, that Jones really has a, a formidable business in which he is able to you know, raise a lot of money, both selling his uh, nutraceutical uh, supplement pills, as well as just sort of soliciting money to keep InfoWars up. And one of the ways that he uh, and, and the company really do that is to say, they're always on the verge of being completely censored by the mainstream media, by the government, that you know the only way that you can keep the truth out there uh, is to uh, support Jones and to support his mission. And he has a really, really, really active and engaged following base. And so he's able to raise, you know, some people were telling me, former employees, he could raise, you know, $100,000 in a couple of hours, just sort of with a plea to his followers. Um, and so I think what that shows us is right now, you know, these companies are taking a stand against Jones and his content. They're limiting that reach substantially. But Jones streams live on his uh, website every day for four hours a day. And there's plenty of other content besides that. And he's able to raise that money. So I, I think well, Jones is not going to go away, but it's going to be really interesting to see what he is able to do sort of crossing over into the, you know, the, the culture uh, when he doesn't have some of these platforms like uh, Facebook when he loses some of these platforms. Well, Charlie, as always, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for your reporting. Take care. Appreciate it. All right, listen, up next, Stephanie McNeil's gonna come back on the set and we're gonna read your tweets. Stick around. Welcome back. Uh, I wanted to start by talking, Steph, during that book segment, you were like, I read that one. I read that one. Do you like just read a ton? I read really quickly. You it's, read really yeah, quickly. It's my, it's my hidden superpower. I got through, I don't know, I just read really fast. People, like, when people watch me read, they think I'm, like, lying, but I'm not. Did you, like, train up for that? Did you, like, buy a CD no, when you were a kid? No, no, like... I've always, I just read really quickly. Like, I read the last Harry Potter book in, like, 12 hours. What? Yeah. That's amazing. I, I don't know, it's just, it's just. I, I, listen, I was a book editor. <laughs> I read for a living for many, many years of my life. And like, don't get me wrong, I think I became a faster reader. Um, but I, it was still for me, I read kind of slowly. So that's, I wish I had your talents are basically what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, I can read like 800 pages in like a few hours. All right, slow <laughs> down. I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to brag or anything. It's just, it's, it's just my hidden talent. It's impressive. I, don't know. <laughs> I love it. And I do like to read. I feel like you know, I, it was like a defining characteristic of my childhood, which I'm sure is sim similar to you. It's like, I was the reader. I was always reading constantly. Um, when I was in grade school, I would be reading during tests and I would get in trouble. And my teachers would tell me that, the teachers would tell my mom that they didn't want to yell at me for reading during class, oh. but like I was disruptive. <laughs> but you weren't taking the <laughs> test. Oh, I love it. Um, but yeah, now I, now I can read a little bit more uh, <laughs> I that it. I am on the train and yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Well, we asked you what the worst thing you've ever seen at a wedding was, and Hamza Shaven said, a DJ refused to play Toto's Africa. <laughs> that is a crime. I think this was, there was a list going around, I think from the Nod or something, that was like uh, the top 50 songs that 
people don't want played at their weddings. You know, like when you are doing a DJ list for a wedding, you do a list of like, do not play these songs. And I think Africa was on it. I, I will say if that's that's true, right? If it was the bride and the groom and they yeah. were like, hey, don't play this song. And then the DJ was just standing by that, that's great. But if like the bride and groom were requesting it and the DJ was like, I refuse to play it, forget that. BuzzFeed's own Sarah Mims also had a terrible wedding story. The best man wouldn't stop talking about the number of times he'd heard the bride and groom have sex during his toast in front of her grandmother. Ooh, awkward best man speeches are the worst. I feel like weddings during the speeches are one of the times where you just really see like how much better women are than men because like the woman always gives a good speech even if it's like short and sweet and you know it's not that funny and the guy it's either like amazing everyone talking about it or just like huge crash and burn disaster. And it's usually Which based I, it's in this metaphor. like, I'm gonna make fun of my buddy on his special day. And it's like, no, don't ruin it like that, especially in front of Aunt Shirley. Toxic masculinity is a prison. <laughs> Anyway, and finally, one more bad wedding experience from Kat Redman. Wow, all the weddings I've been to are lovely. I went to a dry wedding once. Never again. That's just not okay. I mean, if everyone at the wedding's gonna be dry, sure. But if not, I tweeted her help back us out. and I said, "Can you imagine that dance floor?" <laughs> like, can you imagine like everyone trying to dance? <laughs> I'm, you know what? I'm gonna not try and imagine. I'm gonna not imagine that because that sounds painful. Thank you so much to all of our guests today: Corbin Smith, Ryan Broderick, Paul McLeod, Danielle Brooks, Natasha Leone, Sierra, uh, sorry, Velarde, and Charlie Warzel. And thank you, of course, to you, Stephanie, for co-hosting today. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me and letting me have fun with you guys. 800 pages in a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow, I'm going to be co-hosting with Chantal Fallins. Saeed's on vacation. We'll see you here Tuesday, 10 a.m.